Okay, you're going to want to take out your Bibles, and then also, uh, if you would like to take notes, the back of the bulletin has a place for you to take notes, so that's there for you as well, uh, and I would encourage you to make use of that, because we're beginning a new series this week uh, called Faith Matters. Did you see our new banners as you came in? Um, you like those? Yep, I designed those myself, and... You know, I can't, even, I can't even lie to you guys anymore. As soon as I say something, you know it's not true. Ricky designs those and does a great job, so thanks for that. Um, two people appreciated that, Ricky. I, that's good to know. Um, but I've, I've been sort of chomping at the bit for a while to, to do a series on faith. And the reason I want to do this series is because there's so much... Um, discussion about faith. There is so much teaching out there about faith, and there, there is frankly a ton of confusion about faith. You know, what is faith really? What does it amount to? How do we operate in faith? How much of it depends upon me, and what part of it depends upon God, and, and how do I really live the life of faith? When the Bible says to walk by faith, what does it mean to walk by faith? I mean, really a foundational verse for the whole Reformation was when Martin Luther was reading the book of Romans, and he saw in Romans 1.17 that it says, and um, the, the righteous shall live by faith. And so we go, okay, if that's so foundational to what it means to be a Christian, if, if my righteousness is tied up with my faith, I want to have some kind of understanding of what it really means to live by faith. What is biblical faith? And that's really what we're going to be focusing on for the next several weeks. And, you know, if, if you ask some people, they would say that faith is an intellectual belief, that, that, you know, you have to believe and you have to trust that God is who He says He is, and it's an intellectual concept that God exists, and so we, we have to get that thought in our head, and if we do that, that's faith. And to a certain degree, that is accurate. It just doesn't go far enough. I mean, the truth of the matter is, one of the things that we have to keep straight in our Christian life is that intellectualism and faith are not separate concepts. That we walk by faith as thinking, reasonable people whom God has made in His image to be thoughtful. And so we don't want to divorce ourselves completely from our intellect and say there's nothing intellectual about faith when in fact much of the basis of our faith happens in our thoughts. It's what we trust in. It's what we're convinced of. So there is some truth to the idea that faith is an intellectual process. It's just that that doesn't go nearly far enough. Some say that faith is a power. This is one of the most common things that you hear today, that there's power in faith. That if we just have enough faith, then we have power to do almost anything based on our faith. After all, doesn't the Bible say that if you have enough faith, you can do great things? Doesn't the Bible say that if you have just faith of a mustard seed, you'll be able to move mountains, right? And so there's an idea that, that faith and power are related, that faith is a power, and that if we have faith and we exercise faith, then we will be exercising power and we'll be able to do all kinds of things. There is a um, nuance to this teaching that is so important for us to understand that we're going to actually spend significant time during this ser sermon series thinking about this question of the relationship between faith and power, because while it is true that there is a strong relationship between faith and power, 
it is not biblically accurate to say that faith is a power. See, faith is not a power. It's a way of connecting to God's power. We need to make sure that we're absolutely clear on this. It's not about you, and it's not about me. It's not about my power and the strength of my faith and what I can do with my faith. The same kind of a misconception is out there about prayer. How many times have you heard someone say there's power in prayer, right? Well, that's not actually true. There's power in God, and prayer is a way to tap into our relationship with God, and God's power flows through. You say, well, why are you splitting hairs about this? Because as we're going to find out later in the series, it makes all the difference in the world in the way you live your life. So faith and power are tied together, but faith is not a power. If faith were a power, if I could just by believing strongly enough cause something to be true, then the tooth fairy would exist. Okay, hope I didn't spoil anybody's stuff. Garrett, you're good with that? Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm not getting into that now. Um, so our goal in the series is not just to think about faith and to try to understand some sort of general definition of faith. Our goal in this series is to understand true biblical faith. What does the Bible have to say about this? Because there are a million voices out there today who have something to say about faith. And what we need to get straight is what the Bible has to say about faith. And we're going to try to get a fairly comprehensive view of this by studying the Scripture together on Sunday mornings. Um, and, And the point of it is not so we can be right. The point of it is not so that we can win an argument against someone who has a different view of faith. The point of it is that if we're going to take God at His word... We want to actually understand His words so we can apply it to our lives. We want to live differently because of our understanding of God's Word. And when it comes down to this issue of faith, when the Bible has so much to say about faith, when faith is so central to what the Bible says it is to be a Christian, we better have a pretty good understanding of what it means to walk by faith. And so a great starting point for a biblical discussion of faith is the book of Hebrews. So we're going to be in the book of Hebrews today. If you want to get a head start, you can just flip the book, the book of Hebrews chapter 10. That's where we're going to launch this thing. Um, and the book of Hebrews is toward the back of your New Testament, uh, right before you get to the book of James, okay? But as you're turning there, let me sort of set this up for you and give you some understanding, because we're not doing a study of the book of Hebrews today, but, but what Hebrews has to say about faith is so foundational to everything we're going to be saying for the next several weeks We're going to have to understand some context here. So one of the things you first of all need to understand about the book of Hebrews is it is unlike any other New Testament book. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then Acts. Those are historical accounts of actions that took place, right? So we get these historical accounts of the first five books of the New Testament, and then we start getting into letters. And most of these are letters that are written by Paul or one of the other apostles that are meant to teach doctrine and to teach us how to live out that doctrine. And they're written as letters. And you could tell that they're letters because at the beginning they have the standard address of a letter and at the end they have the standard sign-off of a letter. And we know that Paul sent these letters or Peter sent these letters, John sent these letters. They were distributed among the churches. They were read publicly. They were letters that were read. As far as we know, the book of Hebrews is the book we know the least about in the New Testament. Um, 
We don't know who wrote it. And it's apparently not a letter. It doesn't look like a letter in any way. There's no salutation and greeting. There's no benediction. There's, there's none of the typical format of a letter. In fact, our best guess with the book of Hebrews is that it's a sermon, that it was preached as a sermon and then, um, you know, uh, transcribed and put into writing because the sermon turned out to be so foundational and because it was directed at Hebrew Christians. And because you had these Jewish Christians in the first century who were, um, because of the um, persecution that was going on in Jerusalem, the, the Jewish Christians, even more than the Greek Christians, were spreading out through all these other areas. And so there was apparently this message that was preached, um, and we call it the book of Hebrews, and it was aimed at those Jewish believers, but then it was transcribed, apparently, and sent out to the, to the churches all around Asia Minor and in through Europe and all the areas where Paul went. So that's what we understand about the book of Hebrews. There's, there's a lot that we don't understand about it, but... When you get to Hebrews chapter 10, what you have is you have the writer of Hebrews has been um, already uh, speaking to Jewish believers, and he's been talking to them about what, is it, what does it mean to actually be a follower of Jesus as a Jew? I mean, do we give up our Judaism to become Christians? Is Christianity just the next step in Judaism? Are Christianity and Judaism compatible? What are we as Christians now to do with things like the law? How are we to understand righteousness? What about the temple service? What about um, the Ten Commandments? What about the way that we keep the Sabbath? All of those kinds of things become questions to Jews who have now become Christians and are going, is this completely different or is it exactly the same or is it somewhere in between? And so the author of the book of Hebrews is writing to address those issues. And by the time we get to chapter 10, he's already been talking a lot about the law and how the law works and what the Jews are used to in the law and how Christ is different. And so when we get to chapter 10, he's really going to begin introducing this concept of faith. And I want us to pick it up at the end of chapter 10 in the book of Hebrews. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 35. He says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. They have need of endurance. They're being persecuted. They've been chased from their homeland. In fact, in many ways, the things that we're seeing on the news today about what's happening in the Middle East, both in the Israel-Palestine conflict um, what's happening with the um, terrorist organizations, the Islamic terrorist organizations, what's happening in Northern Africa and, and much of Africa now in terms of the um, persecution of Christians. Um, that is basically what they were going through. They had been chased from their homeland. They were refugees. They were now just basically trying to figure this out in a new place, and they needed endurance. And yet, it was very difficult for them because Christianity was brand new, and they were trying to figure out who they were as religious people and what they were supposed to do. And so he says, you know, don't lose your confidence. And by the way, the word confidence there is not an intellectual term. The, the Greek word for confidence is a word that means boldness, and especially in terms of your speaking. 
That's the most common way the term was used, that you would speak boldly. He's saying, don't be afraid to speak boldly about your faith in Christ. Don't lose your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. The righteous one shall live by faith. And God says, but if he shrinks back, if he loses his confidence, if he's not willing to endure, if he's not able to stand up even under great persecution, if he shrinks back, God says, my soul has no pleasure in him. In other words, I am not pleased with the one who shrinks back. Now, that's going to become very important, this, uh, this concept of God being pleased, because we're going to be talking about that as the message goes on. Verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. We do not shrink back, but we believe and are saved, he's saying. In the Greek, the word for faith and the word for belief are the same word. One is a noun and one is a verb, okay? So at the exact same root, when we're seeing this idea about believing, that's the verb for the, for the noun belief. So that which we put our faith in is acted out. That's what a verb does, right? Remember that from English class, right? The verb is active. So we believe, we act somehow based upon our faith. And we're going to see that concept coming up again and again and again. And then as we launch into chapter 11 of Hebrews, chapter 11 tells us what that faith or belief looks like. And it begins with a very simple definition um, that we're just going to touch on, but not really um, spend a lot of time on. Here in chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now we do need to stop long enough just to touch on this and lay some foundation here so that we can understand what we're getting at because this is the only place in Scripture that you have anything that resembles a definition of faith. Now, I'm going to show you in the next weeks that this is not the complete definition of faith, but it is a way for us to understand what this belief looks like as we are enduring and as we are putting our trust in God what does it look like? He says, it's the assurance of things hoped for. Another translation says, faith is being sure of what you hope for, okay? And this is a really, really important part, a difference between a real, genuine, biblical Christian faith and just hoping that something good might happen or wishing that things will turn out the way you want them to turn out. It's not positive confession. It's not possibility thinking. It's the, the assurance that what you hope for is real. It's being sure that what you hope for is real and being confident, it goes on to say, the conviction of things not seen. And we all deal with this. We deal with it more than we realize in our everyday lives. We have to act upon things that we're pretty sure are true even though we cannot measure them. Even though we cannot evaluate them in a laboratory or under a microscope, even though we cannot nail down the empirical evidence to the point where we say, there's absolutely no doubt about this. We live our lives on faith all the time. When you make plans 
for next weekend, you're living by faith. When you go on the internet and you give them your credit card and you reserve that vacation spot for July, you're living based on faith. You're believing that when July is going to come, first of all, it will come. And secondly, that when it does come, you're going to go on this vacation and therefore you're willing to spend the money. We do that sort of stuff all the time. And basically what he's saying is when you have faith, you have that kind of assurance, that kind of conviction that you go ahead and act on it even though you can't see it. And it could be that you can't see it because it's in the future. It could be that you can't see it because it's in the past. And it could be that you can't see it because it's just not in the room with you. But for whatever reason, you might have to trust that something is real, even when there's no way for you to measure it and quantify it as being real. And basically, he's saying, that's what faith is. And he's trying to help them to see, this is not some weird, bizarre, out there concept that you have to go see some swami at the top of a mountain to figure out. This is what we do all the time. Faith is normative for the lives of Christians and non-Christians. But the thing is, for Christians, we're putting our absolute eternal trust in something that we cannot see or measure with the five senses. And so he tells us that's what faith is. Verse 2. For by it, the men of old gained approval. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things which are visible. So again, he's giving us an example. He says, listen, here's what I mean when I say that you're putting your trust in things that you cannot see. Because if you believe that there was ever a point in which the world was created, you probably weren't there for it. And I'm not going to say anything to Jim about this, but you probably... <laughs> probably weren't there for it, right? You probably don't know for sure that that happened or how it happened or what the circumstances were or how it went down. But as he's writing to Hebrews, they all know the book of Genesis and they all understand the account that God gives where he says, there was once nothing and then I spoke and everything began to exist. That which is visible was made out of that which is invisible. And he's saying, it is by faith that we believe that. Now, as followers of God, as believers in the Bible, do we have to just stick our heads in the sand? Do we have to ignore all the scientific evidence? Do we have to pretend as though we actually think that's true when we really know that it's just kind of a fable or a fairy tale or a way of explaining things? Or can we use our intellect? Can we do some research? Can we consider the reasonable arguments and decide what is the most reasonable thing to, to believe about what happened when we were not there. Of course we can. And in fact, we should. We're commanded in Scripture to do that. So if your thought is, you know, I, I believe that probably what the Bible says about creation is true, but I have no idea for sure. I don't really know how that works. I haven't really looked into it. I would say to you, look into it. As I've been saying in the last couple of weeks, you know what? You don't ever have to be afraid to seek truth. We don't ever have to be afraid, oh my gosh, if I look into this, I'm going to find out it's not true, and then what's going to happen to my faith? You know what? If it's not true, wouldn't you rather know? I would rather know. And so we have absolutely nothing to fear, nothing to be afraid of. We look at the evidence, and we come to reasonable conclusions. But even after all of our study and all of our convictions about what must have been true all the way back at the beginning, we still weren't there. We still don't have any evidence that we can see, that we can taste, that we can smell. All we have 
is the evidence that is secondary, the evidence that says, well, things work like this, therefore it's reasonable to believe this. Things are created with such great, um, uh, immense um, detail, and the systems upon which everything works are so carefully calculated that there's nothing else in all of human experience that would be so carefully calculated that happened just accidentally. So it's reasonable to think that there's a creator. And so he's using that as an example for people who basically would say, yeah, we believe that creation happened the way God's word says it happened. So he says, even though you weren't there, even though you can't see it, by faith, you're convinced of it. And then he goes on and he continues to start giving examples. And all through the 11th chapter of the book of Romans, it's become known as the hall of faith. Because in the book of Romans, chapter 11, it just gives us example after example after example, beginning with Abel and working forward in time. It gives us all these examples of people who actually did put their hope in God and acted like they put their hope in God. In fact, depending on how you want to count the list, there's somewhere around 18 or 20 examples from the Old Testament given in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, of people who actually lived by faith. And so he begins to give those examples, beginning with Abel, and then we come in verse 6 to an absolutely critically important juncture. Everything that we're going to say about faith and the significance of faith for the rest of this series is going to be tied back to this verse. So if you are a note taker, it is important for you to write down this verse. And if you're one who marks in your Bible, I highly suggest that you highlight it, underline it, star it, circle it, do all the things that you can do to make sure that you can always find this verse because it's a foundational verse. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please him, God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Why do we need to understand faith? Why do we need to live by faith? Because it says here that without faith, whatever the Bible means when it uses that term, without faith, it is what? Impossible. Now, there are, there are a few um, translations that actually use the word difficult there. That's a terrible translation because the Greek word only means one thing. It means impossible. So when it says it is impossible to please God without faith, we better stand up and listen because there's a very important reason for this. Because in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, we find out the importance of pleasing God. So leave your finger there in Hebrews, but go back to 2 Corinthians, which is a few books back to the left. And go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9. Now, if you've been around Grace Fellowship any length of time or you've heard me preach more than six times, you have probably heard me read this verse to you or heard me quote it in some context. I want you to understand, as you go through the first few chapters of 2 Corinthians, it's, this is one of the letters from Paul. He's writing to the Corinthian church, and he's basically whining like a little baby for the first four chapters. He is going on and on about how difficult things have been for him, how, un, how disloyal his friends and colleagues have been, how he's cried out to God for certain things and God won't let him have it, how the people um, that he considered his closest friends, the ones who looked up to him as their pastor, are now deserting him and going after other teachers and saying that the teachings of Paul are not really worthy and that Paul is not really an apostle. And he's telling you all of this 
through the first four chapters, and he's basically saying, in fact, I am so sick of this, I just want to be done. I just want to go to heaven. And he goes on and says, in fact, my preference would be to be absent from the body so I could be present with the Lord. But he says, however, the Lord has decided that I need to be present in the body and wait to be present with the Lord. And so here I am, stuck with you people. That's basically what Paul says, okay? And then we get to um, chapter 5, verse 6 of 2 Corinthians. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we're at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. This is one of the most foundational verses in all of Scripture, if you ask me. We have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, dead or alive, no matter what our circumstances, there is only one singular ambition, Paul says, for me and the other apostles. We have only one purpose. And I believe that this is the purpose for all people. In fact, I believe this is the purpose for everything that God has created, people and otherwise. And he tells us what the purpose is, to be pleasing to God. In other words, there is no way for you to live your life successfully if you are not being pleasing to God. You can have all the money in the world, you can have all the fame, you can have the big corner office, you can have all of the um, uh, dreams come true that you have dreamed, and you can have reached every goal that you ever set, but if God is not pleased, then He writes over your life failure and not success. Uh, by the same token, you could be living in the slums of the poorest nation on earth, homeless and sleeping in the streets. You could be riddled with disease. You could be um, disassociated from your family. And you could in some way be living a life that is pleasing to God even under those circumstances. And God looks at you and writes over your life successful. The difference between success and failure has nothing to do with all the ways that we measured in the world. It has everything to do with one thing, being pleasing to God. If you want to be successful, you will be pleasing to God. That's it. Okay? Now you understand why Hebrews 1.6 is so important. He says, for apart from faith, it is impossible to please God. There's only one purpose for which you were created... And that is to please God. And if you do not have true biblical faith, you are not pleasing to God. So the difference between success and failure in the human life boils down to this question of faith, which is why I think it's worth spending several weeks examining the scriptures and trying to figure this out so that we're not under the delusion that somehow because we have certain intellectual beliefs and certain religious practices that we are somehow living by faith. Because no matter what your intellectual beliefs, no matter what your religious practices, if you are not living by faith, you are not pleasing to God. And if you are not pleasing to God, you are failing. And so everything comes down to this question of faith. We must believe that He exists and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Do you see that? In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Now, there are those who believe that God exists, but they don't seek him. 
There are those who believe that God exists, and they say, yeah, it makes sense to me. I mean, there's no other way to explain the creation of the universe. There's, there's no other way to explain the things that are going on that obviously have a spiritual component, that God must exist. And, you know, I was sort of raised in America, and I was raised in a kind of a Christian home, and I went to Sunday school in VBS when I was a kid, and they told me that this is the real God, and I have no reason to doubt that, so I believe that God exists. But that's as far as it goes. If you believe intellectually that the God of the Bible exists and yet do nothing to respond to his invitation to walk with him in a transformed life, then it could be argued that you are more guilty before God than one who never even heard of him or knows that he exists. And he says it's not enough to believe that he exists, but you have to, if, you're, if you're going to come to him, you have to believe that he exists, and you have to believe that he is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. And the concept being that if you really believe that, you will earnestly seek him. And so this idea of earnestly seeking God, of wanting to have a relationship with God, of wanting to walk closely with God, is also foundational to what it means to be a Christian. So here's a working definition I'm going to give you, and it's just something that's made up, and you can't look it up anywhere. It's just a working definition that's going to help us of what biblical faith is. Biblical faith is acting on the belief that God is who He says He is, and He will do what He says He will do. Biblical faith is acting on the belief that God is who He says He is, and He will do what He says He will do. It's believing God enough to do what he says. You see, there's this active component to faith. It's not just an intellectual thing. It's not just a passive thing. It's an active thing. Now, let me give you an Old Testament example of this. Um, go back to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. It's toward the back of your Old Testament. So go to the book of Daniel. And the book of Daniel, I want you to come to Daniel chapter 3. And there's a familiar story that if you were ever in Sunday school, you've probably heard. So these three young Hebrew men, uh, they were kidnapped from their land when God allowed Babylon to invade Israel and take away um, their choicest people. And these, these were men from royal lines, and they were young boys when they were taken, and they were put into these schools in Babylon, and they were trained up to serve in the court of Babylon. Among them was a guy named Daniel, for whom the book is named, and then three other guys that are, that are prominent in this book, and their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego um, are these young men who are serving in the royal council. And the king is so full of himself that he comes up with a law, and the law is, I have built this giant statue, and I'm going to place it in the middle of the center of town, and then there's going to be a time when I'm going to um, uh, require my musicians to begin to play. And when the musicians begin to play, whenever you hear music in any setting, in any place, at any time, you must stop what you're doing, you must turn to the direction of the statue, and you must bend down, and you must worship before this statue, which brings glory and honor to me as the king and to the gods that we serve in our pagan culture. And basically what happens is these three Jewish boys, young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, we can't do that. And so when the music begins to play, knowing that they cannot bow down to false idols, they just ignore it. And the word gets out, and they have some political rivals. Imagine that, political rivals throwing people under the bus 
We never see that in our country, but in that country that happened. And they were political rivals, and they went to the king and they said, hey, these Hebrew men, they don't bow down to your idol. I think they're disrespecting you. And the king blows his stack. And the king decides that he is going to make an example of them. And we're going to pick it up in Daniel chapter 3 and verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, that's the king, in rage and anger gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready... At the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hand? Sounds like a challenge, doesn't it? Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, We do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. It's coming down to a test of faith. And these guys say, listen, uh, We absolutely, positively will not deny our faith and act outside of our faith. Our faith requires us to refuse to worship anything that is not the one true God. So there's no need for a discussion. There's no need for you to count to three. There's no need for you to send us home and give us a week to think about it. There's no point in talking about this anymore. Play the music all you want. We're not going to bow down. And you know what? You say, what God is there that can deliver us? Well, our God. And if he wants to, he will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we're still not bowing down to your image. Now, I want you to, to picture this, to understand this, because when you learned it in Sunday school as a kid, you went, oh, look at how brave they were. They were unwilling to disobey God. This goes a lot further than this question of whether they were willing to obey or disobey God in this one instance. This is a lifestyle that they have chosen. They have decided that they will walk by faith. They will be men of faith. And faith means that I actually believe that God is who He says He is and that He will do what He says He will do. And our God says that He is the one and only true God. Therefore, to bow down to anything else in worship would be the ultimate in uh, disrespect and sin. And He says that He will deliver us. Now, does He say that He will keep us from dying? No. But he says that he will deliver us. And what these guys are saying is, I know you have the power to throw us into this furnace. And obviously, you throw people into furnaces and they burn to death. um, But we're still not going to do it because our God will deliver us whether you throw us into the fire or not. I don't think they're saying we're coming out of the fire. I think they're saying that we trust God, that he's got our eternity under control, no matter whether we burn to death or die of old age at the age of 150. We're going to just trust that our God is going to deliver us, and we're not going to um, live apart from our faith. Then Nebuchadnezzar was um, filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated, like fire is not hot enough. Um, 
he commanded certain valiant warriors who were uh, in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and other clothes. Isn't that silly that he tells us all about their trousers and their caps and all that? Who cares, right? You're going to see. They're... Their coats, their caps, their other clothes are cast into the midst of the fire, fire, furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Okay? So they tie them up, they wrap them up fully clothed, and they carry them over to throw them in the fire. But just to get close enough to pitch them into the furnace, the flames are so hot that those men die as they're throwing these guys into the fire. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, verse 23, fell into the midst of the furnace, a blazing fire, still tied up. And that's the end of the story. You would think, wouldn't you? <laughs> I mean, once they're in the fire, it's like, oh, well, I guess, I guess he's not going to deliver them. Verse 24, then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste, and he said to his high officials, was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, certainly, O king. And he said to them, look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Now, his pagan perspective tells him that there are many gods and that this this being that is in the fire with them is a son of one of the gods. We know which god he's the son of, right? The son of God meets them in the midst of this fire. Verse 26, then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the most high God, and come here. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. The satraps and prefects and governors and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was their hair, the hair of their head singed, nor was their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. They went into the fire with trousers, coats, hats, and ropes. The only thing that was burned up in the fire was that which bound them, the ropes. When they came out, they were in perfect condition. Their hats had not burned. Their shirts had not burned. Their uh, clothing had not burned. Not even the smell of smoke was upon them. They had been completely delivered. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel to deliver his servants and put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. And he goes on to make a decree that the only God you can worship in all of Babylon is the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, that's a great story, right? That is a great story. But what's important to recognize is not that they came out of the fire. It was that the life of faith required that they be willing to go into the fire. The life of faith required that they have such a trust in God that they actually act upon their belief even in the most difficult and dark circumstances. Guys, you don't have to go past the first page of any news website today 
or pick up any newspaper or turn on any news station, and what you will find is story after story after story of people who are followers of God today being persecuted all around the world, and you're seeing stories of beheadings, and you're seeing stories of crucifixions, and you're seeing stories of people being burned alive, and schools where they come in and just shoot up everybody for one reason, because they name the name of Christ. And in most of these cases, they are given the option to renounce their faith in Christ and live or to continue to serve Christ and die. And they consistently decide to continue to serve Christ and die. Listen, the great part about this story is not that those guys came out of the fire. For every story that we have for people that got rescued because of their faith, like Daniel in the lion's den, or these guys, or, or the parting of the Red Sea, or any of these stories of people who put their trust in God and got delivered, and they got saved, and they got protected, for every story like that in Scripture, there are literally tens of thousands of stories throughout history of Christians who were not delivered in that way, and they died gruesome and awesome deaths. Because they were unwilling to say, I will not renounce my faith, not just with my words, but with my life. And every one of those people was delivered. Because our God is who He says He is, and He will do what He says He will do. And beginning next week, we're going to start tearing into this and asking God, what does this look like? For me to walk this kind of a walk where my faith is so profound, not that I would be willing to face death for Jesus, but that I would actually be willing to face life for Jesus. That I would actually be willing to walk day by day and moment by moment as if God was really who he said he is and he will really do what he says he will do. And we're going to get into that and we're going to start digging in and we're going to start applying it in our lives and we're going to see what God can do in the lives of people who will simply say, I actually believe you, God, and I'm going to live like it's true. Oh my gosh, imagine the change in our lives if we actually lived every moment like we believe that God is who he says he is, and he will do what he says he will do. We got a God who is worthy to be trusted with everything. Amen?